I don't know if you noticed the cool thing he was doing on that guitar during Oh How He Loves Us. Did you notice that? You're probably into the song, but I know just enough guitar to know what's cool, and that was cool, what he was doing. So, People describe the experience of being in the military and being in war in different ways. One that I have uh, heard is hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. Any military people agree with that? Last night they did. So apparently it's true. Life is like that though, isn't it? Normal life. Let's just be honest. Isn't a lot of life humdrum? The humdrum of life. The the day-to-day of living, which very easily feels to us like... Uh, a routine. Life settles into a kind of routine where we get up in the morning, we do the things we need to do, uh, we get off into our day, whatever that might be. Uh, we get home and we go to bed and we wake up the next day and we do it all over again. And <clears throat> much of life is uh, maybe normal. But then what happens? You know what happens. Suddenly, something unexpected comes into the experience. All of a sudden, something knocks us up across the head like a two-by-four. A trial, a trouble, a crisis, something that we didn't see coming. And all of a sudden, the humdrum has changed. And that moment and those moments for us are times of faith crisis where we are tested as to whether or not we actually believe what we say that we believe. For this message today, I'm calling those moments must have faith moments. Say that with me. Must have faith moments. Moments. My faith in those moments either activates and generates confidence, assurance, hope in the midst of the crisis, or it fails to activate and I give in to my natural tendency to want to cope with it by being angry, uh, vengeful, bitter, worry, whatever it might be. Must have faith moments. As a pastor, I oftentimes get to see people in these kinds of crises. Things like, uh, I lost my job. I lost my spouse. I lost my health. I lost my adult child's affection. I lost my financial security. I lost my friend. You may be in a moment like that here uh, right now. Something that is important to you is being threatened. And you feel in your heart a kind of tension now between what you want to happen and what might happen if things go badly. And you have faith, if you're a Christian, you have faith that is needing to activate and apply what you claim to believe over the trial that you're facing. A must-have-faith moment. 
And today, we're going to be introduced to two men who had these kinds of moments. One of their, their, their moments are different, though. The one moment is a more kind of sudden and immediate crisis, and the other one is more of a long-term trial that he was facing. But both of them were had a faith encounter with Jesus that revealed whether or not their faith was authentic. And so our text today is in John, and we're in the series on John, so you ought to be automatically turning to John. And today we begin in chapter 4, verse 46. Here's what it says. So he, this is Jesus, came down to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, in case you'd forgotten from an earlier chapter. Oh, by the way, Cana, where he turned the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. I'm calling this guy the desperate dad. The desperate dad. Now, what do we, what do we know about him? Well, right away we learn a few things. First of all, it says that he is from the city, the town of Capernaum. So to get our bearings in the story, let's go back to our map from last week. And you'll remember that we studied the woman at the well and that Jesus was making his way back up into Galilee and he stopped in Samaria and he met the woman at the well, which was last week. Well, he spent a couple days there, and then he makes his way up into Galilee, which is this area up in here. He is in Cana, which is about right there, just north of Nazareth. This dad that we're talking about is in Capernaum, which is right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the north shore right there. About 25 miles from Capernaum over to Cana. Okay? So, now you all know where he is from. The second thing we learn about him is that he is a government official. Okay, so he's, he's working, he's employed by, uh, by the Romans, probably working for Herod the Great in some capacity. Third, and most significant, he was a dad whose son was dying. His son, it says, is sick to the point of death. So we're not talking about uh, the sniffles or a flu. We're talking about some much more serious illness. He had a fever. We know that as well. But it was obvious to this dad and the others there that, that he's not going to come back from this. Like he's about to die. All right, so let's put this whole story together. Jesus has left Cana. He's co- or left Samaria, he's made his way up into Galilee and to this town of Cana. Now, Cana is important in the story because Cana is where Jesus performed his very first miracle, where at the wedding feast in Cana, he uh, turned, he turned the water into wine. Uh, this, of course, will make you famous and popular in any town, including our own. So sometime later, we're not sure how long, Jesus is making his way back into Cana, and I see in my mind the townspeople, word gets out, Jesus is coming back into Cana, and everyone's like, fill the tubs with water, he might do it again, let's get ready for it. They're excited to see him. 
Now, according to John, this is the only miracle that Jesus had done thus far. And so let's go back to the dad. Okay, we go back to the dad over in Capernaum, 25 miles away. When Jesus turned the water into wine, word spreads throughout the whole area that he's done this. All right. No doubt word gets all the way to Capernaum. This guy's a government official. He's got connections. He's in the know. Somebody, something like this happening certainly would have got to him. And you can see that this guy hearing the news that there's some fellow in Cana that turned water into wine and he saw, he kind of stopped to himself and he thought, well, now that's, you don't hear that every day. That's kind of interesting, huh? And he went on with his day. Well, time passed and this Dad was a relatively new dad. We know that from the Greek word there for son. It's not adult son. It's young son or boy. So this is a small child, a young, a young boy. And at some point in this story, this son uh, takes ill. Now, those of you who are parents right now ought to be, uh, again, to relate to this. Because one of the things about being a parent is that these kids are always getting sick. Right? I, I know this. I see the posts on Facebook all the time. Up all night with puking child. You know, yay, they say. And so this is a regular part of being uh, a parent. When an illness turns more serious and more life-threatening, now parents move into a whole nother level of concern. Because they want their child to be healthy. They want their child to be safe. And when there is an illness that is threatening their life, now this is a very, very desperate thing. And you know, parents haven't changed in 2,000 years. This is this dad. He's, he's a government guy working his job. He's got a wife. He's got a son. And the son takes ill and it gets serious. And he now is feeling a sense of desperation. Remember, he's a government official. He's got connections. So part of this story, no doubt, is they were bringing in anybody who could possibly help the son. We know there were doctors in the day. Luke was a doctor. So they've brought the doctors in. The best of the time have come in and checked this kid out and have done what they can. But he's not getting any better. He's getting worse. And so now the dad feels like time is against him. What could he do? We got nothing we can do. The doctors have said there's nothing more that they can do. His mind is racing for some. Where do I turn in a moment like this? And all of a sudden he thought, wait a second. I heard that there was a guy in Cana who turned water into wine. Now, what do you suppose is the connection between a guy who can turn water into wine and thinking that he might be able to turn a sick, dying child into a healthy one. I have to think the the dad thought to himself, well, if he did the one, maybe he can do the other. Now, I would have to say that, uh, um, well, never mind that thought. We'll save it for later. So, What's important in this is that this guy, you know, we read the story, um, like I read this story, I have known about Jesus all my life. Since the time I was a kid, I knew that he did this and did that, healed these people and all the rest. And we think this guy thought to himself, well, Jesus is the healer. I'm going to go to Canaan and everything's going to be fine. He didn't know that. 
Like, maybe for you as well, we sort of read our own perspective into the story and we miss how these people didn't know that this was going to turn out well. They had no idea. I, you know, I, when I was a kid, we used to sing the song in Sunday school, He's able, He's able, I know He is able, I know my Lord is able to carry me through. He healed the brokenhearted, set the captive free, made the lame to walk again, caused the blind to see. I was waiting for somebody to join me, but no luck today. So it's easy for us to miss what it was like to be these people in these stories, because we already know how it turns out. He didn't know that. So with no other alternative and all hope fading, he decides to walk the equivalent of a marathon to Cana, 25 miles. You know, today's the Chicago Marathon. We got people in our church that are running the the, the marathon. We got one guy in our church who's doing 50 miles today, started at 3 a.m. He just got done, maybe. He's hoping it was eight or nine hours. 50 miles of running. We should just discipline him out of the church, don't you think, for that? (laughs) Something wrong there. I'm kidding. But that's what this dad does. And he doesn't have, you know, Nike technology in his shoes. He doesn't have water booths along the way. And it's not a flat route. This is a hilly countryside. And he says, you know what? I'm going to walk 25 miles to Cana. And I'd like to think there isn't a dad here who wouldn't do the same for his son. So we see that this is a real man, a real dad. He's doing whatever he can do. And the last thing he knew, he doesn't even know where Jesus is at. Okay, there's no news broadcast. There's, you know, nobody's uh, reporting on where Jesus is. But the last I heard, he's in Cana. So where else would I go? I'll go to Cana. Well, Jesus arrives in Cana about the same time this guy arrives in Cana. And he finds Jesus, verse 47, and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Now what I want you to realize is that this dad, from his perspective, needs to convince Jesus to leave Cana and to walk 25 miles back to Capernaum with him. So you can imagine as the guy's walking along, you know, 25 miles, he's walking along, he's thinking to himself, what am I going to say to him? He's playing out the conversation in his mind. What am I going to say to him? And how am I going to convince him to leave Cana and to walk all the way back to Capernaum for my boy? Because from his perspective, Jesus needed to be there. At the very least, if he's going to heal him, he's got to be like in the same room, maybe, you know, pray over him, lay his hands on him, something like that. He needs to be there. And now his must-have faith moment has arrived. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Imagine the look on the guy's face. Hmm. His assumption for 25 miles, Jesus needs to come with me. Jesus makes it clear he's not going. And says to him, your son's going to live. Go. Now for this dad, you got to realize, here's the conundrum. Jesus is his only hope. If he leaves 
and goes, he's leaving the only person who he thinks might be able to heal his son. But if he stays, he now is contradicting what Jesus, who he hopes is going to heal his son, has told him to do. What do you do? And he is confronted with the possibility of a man saying something in Cana and it being true in Capernaum. And who's ever heard of that? For a man to say in Cana something and for it to suddenly be true two counties over. Who does that? He might think to himself, well, I'm impressed by the making water into wine. I heard a few people who drank some of it and they said it was good stuff. But this is a whole nother level. And he's grappling with, the, is, it, is, is this Jesus capable of that? I mean, who can just say reality 25 miles away? Perhaps you find yourself in a similar dilemma today. You're in your must-have faith moment. You're in a crisis moment in your life where you either believe what God says in his word is true and you can trust him for it, or you don't. You are standing in your cana right now. And God's word has said something. There's some obedience. There's some trusting. There's some depending that God is calling you to apply to the crisis that you're in in your life. And in your heart, you're wondering, I'm standing in Cana, but what am I going to find when I arrive in Capernaum? And isn't that the nature of faith, my friends? Where over and over again, we don't know what's waiting for us in Capernaum. God speaks to us in our Canas. And we either believe that what he says is going to be true or not. But we can't, you know, imagine the dad. Jesus says, uh, go, your son will live. And he says, mm, one moment, please. Yeah, honey, how's he looking? Is he looking okay? You know, he couldn't make a call. He couldn't sort of, you know, find out, text, what's going on. He had to leave. And that was the faith call in his life. I think these are the hardest times in the Christian life. When... It's uncertain, especially, you know, it's one thing when it's uncertain how your stock option is going to turn out, or it's uncertain whether you're going to pay a lot for that fix on your car. But when it's the life of your son or the life of a loved one or your own life, now we feel that intensely, do we not? That's a whole nother level of trust that's needed. This is faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This dad had to, could have thought to himself, well, if I'm going, he's going with me. I'm going to take him down. I'm going to wrestle him to the ground. I'll carry him on my back if I have to. I'm going to beg him to come with me. I'm going to bribe him. He is a government official to come with me. A must-have faith 
moment. Do I believe the man who turned water into wine can turn a sick boy into a healthy one by simply speaking? Well, this is what happened. Look at verse 46. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The desperate dad. A lesson in faith. Now quickly, let's go on in the story. We're not going to spend as much time on this one, but I want to talk with you, because the paradigm is, this, is similar uh, from chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. All right, stop there. So imagine the scene now. We're back in Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, there is a famous place called Bethesda. House of Mercy is what it means. And there at Bethesda, there was a pool. And there was a legend, a superstition, that when the waters of the pool were stirred, the first person in was healed. And gathered in that place is every paralyzed, blind, lame, whatever it was, handicapped, disability, they all go there. Now, why do you suppose they all gather there? It's plain, isn't it? In a day when medicine was limited and surgeries were limited, if at all, the only hope you had to being healed, you would go for it, wouldn't you? I remember years ago, I was, when I lived in Indianapolis, there was one of these faith healers that came into town. And, and one of the major arenas in downtown was having these, uh, these meetings. And I had a free night. I was a little curious. So I thought, I think I'm going to go down there and just sort of see what that's going on there. And so as I came walking up to the arena, there were people in wheelchairs everywhere, like hundreds of them all around. And I just looked around and I thought, what is going on here? Well, then I get to the door and they said, it's closed, it's packed out, nobody else can get in. Of course, I found a way in. Uh, <laughs> Being the resourceful individual that I am. I don't know if I should have done that or not, but they didn't charge a ticket price, so I wasn't really stealing. I just found a way into the arena. Will you absolve me of guilt for doing that? Is that okay? Because it makes for a great story today. Maybe that's why I was able to get in, as God knew that I was going to need a sermon illustration in October of 2011 that would fit the story of the, the, the fellow at the uh, Bethesda pool. But there were just people in wheelchairs everywhere. Why did they all gather in Indianapolis that day? Because they've already been to the doctors, they've already had the surgeries, they've done all the medicine, and it hasn't fixed it. 
the problem. And when you hear there's some guy, no matter how kooky he is, who might be able to heal you, guess what? You show up. And I will tell you, they showed up that day in Indianapolis. And it was like that here at Bethesda. It was the only hope that they had. And so the, the, the picture here is of people with all kinds of physical issues and problems and difficulties all gathered around this pool. And the story focuses in on one man in particular, verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid, paralyzed, for 38 years. Can you imagine? 38 years, unable to move his legs. And who knows how long he's been sitting at this pool, waiting for the water to stir. We don't know. And I don't want to overstate this, but let's understand this man's uh, condition. In a day where they didn't have little carts and wheelchairs and on ramps up to buildings and down and vans that you can roll in and get up and even drive, they didn't have any of that stuff that we have today. If you couldn't walk, you could not function in that culture. All of the work, all of the labor depended on the ability to walk. And so this is a man who probably all of his life has been out of the culture, out of society, out of the dignity that those things in that culture offered. In addition to that, here he is by this pool, waiting, watching the water day after day, hoping for healing. And I don't want to overstate this, but also to realize that if you can't move your legs, all the bodily functions that happen every day are all over him. And probably everybody else that's there as well. This is not a pleasant scene. This is not a place that you wanted to go to. But if it's the only hope that you have for being healed, you'll go there. And he had been there probably for a very long time. Well, I'll tell you one guy that that went there, whose name was Jesus. I think he had somebody that he wanted to meet. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, famous words, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Okay, now again... Many of you, you've heard the story long before. The moment it flashed up, you're like, I know where this is going. Imagine that you didn't know that Jesus was about to heal this guy. Imagine that you're the guy there in that moment. Jesus asks, and it's almost, it's like a cruel question, almost. Do you want to be healed? I can imagine this guy saying, uh, yeah, I'm sitting here by the pool of Bethesda. I'm not here because I want to be. Do I want to be healed? A thousand times, yes, I want to be healed. Desperately, I want to be healed. And we see even in this story, one more part of his life, he says, I got no one to even help me into the pool. And somebody else gets there before I do. In other words, he's alone. There's no family there. There's no friend there. There's nobody looking out for him. He is just a man with his disability, sitting by a pool with some superstitious hope that someday maybe he will get in first and be healed. He's in a desperate situation. And Jesus' reply here is, again, classic. Get up, take up your bed, 
and walk. And here now we have his must-have-faith moment. Can you imagine he's been sitting there for how long? His whole life, he sat there and he's tried to move his legs. They don't move. And a guy comes along and says, get up and walk. Can you imagine him in that moment thinking to himself, dude, what are you doing? You're messing with me here. I've had lots of well-intentioned people who tried to help me. I've been through this charade before. I have tried to move my legs all of my life. It doesn't work. They don't work. So get along on your day and just leave us here beside the pool. But that is not what this man did. And what I want you to realize is that he took Jesus at his word. He took him at his word. He believed. He heard and he believed. In other words, his faith activated in this moment. It came alive and it did something. He obeyed and he walked. Which is, again, similar to the dad, whose faith activated when Jesus said, go. So we see two men who took a walk. Both of them walks to remember. One to heal a son and one to heal himself. And both Jesus did. But both of them took him at his word. They obeyed and acted on what Jesus had said. And that's kind of the, here this weekend, this is the big point that I'm wanting to, for you to see, because it's a big point in the Gospel of John. It's a theme that faith believes without seeing where that belief and obedience is going to take you. It is the essence of faith. In fact, this story is further developed by the end of John, famously as well, with Thomas, who's known as Doubting Thomas. And this is now uh, kind of the flower of this truth that we see early in the gospel. And let me just read quickly what happened with Thomas. And the situation is, is that Jesus is resurrected. He appears to the disciples, but Thomas isn't there. And so uh, we find in chapter 20, verse 24, the other disciples told him, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And there we have the natural man. There we have the man apart from faith, the man requiring evidence and proof. Maybe like you today. Possibly as we talk about faith and what it means to trust God and to do what he tells us to do, regardless of the uncertainty of how it's going to work out, you might think to yourself, well, that seems completely irrational to me. Why would I ever do that? I'm never going to go to Capernaum. I'm never leaving Cana without knowing what what, what I'm finding when I get to Capernaum. I want to have it all dialed in. I want to have it all figured out. That's the way I, that's the way I roll. That's the way that I live. Friend, faith requires an element of trust. Trust. It believes without seeing. And we have this with Thomas. By the end of the gospel, it says this, eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, And what a moment this must have been for Thomas. 
I, I sort of see Thomas, all of a sudden there's Jesus, and he's just like, oh, stink. You know, or something like, like I'm, I don't know, th- that's not right. That's not how he responded. But there probably was a little element like, I misspoke big time here. Because here's what, it, what Jesus says. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I love that last little verse there. And when I, when I read this, when I come across this verse, one reason I love that last phrase there is that I think he's talking about me. He's talking about you if you're a Christian here today. I am believing in somebody that my eyes have never seen. I'm believing in a historical moment that I was not there to observe. I wasn't there when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I have never seen Jesus. Never. And yet, I am believing in him and trusting in him as my Savior. My whole eternity is resting in whether or not he was the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins. And that he is alive right now and at the right hand of God. Like all of my future is resting in the reality and the truthfulness of that claim. But I've not ever seen it. And Jesus acknowledges that there are going to be those who have not seen like Thomas and yet are going to believe. And we gather here today for that reason, do we not? That's why we're here. I've not seen it, but I believe. And faith requires believing something that we cannot see. And if you're trying to get it all dialed in and and figured out and answer every question, you're never going to come to faith because you cannot rationalize your way to saving faith. Not that saving faith is irrational, and we could talk a lot about evidences and proofs that that these claims are true. But there comes a point where I either believe it or I do not. And saving faith requires a certain trust. Trust. When I cannot see. And we can ask the question, well, why does God set it up this way? I mean, why not, again, why why not uh, play the video uh, in the sky so everybody can see it? And you weren't there, but this is what happened. Wouldn't that be great? Giant screen up in the sky. You know, you have the, you have the moon and then you have the screen playing this so everybody could see it. We could all believe because we're seeing it with our own eyes. That would be great. But God didn't set it up that way. And there's a reason that he didn't set it up that way. God is not honored. God is not glorified by our needing to know everything. He is glorified by our trust. When we rely on him and believe in him, that he is going to do what he has said he's going to do, even when I can't see it yet, he's glorified by that. He is our heavenly father. Dads, are you glorified when you're, when you're, uh, when, if your son came to you and said, I want to talk to you about what we're eating, uh, for dinner in two weeks. I'm a little unsure of whether or not you're going to provide for me. And you say, son, I love you. I'm going to provide for you. There will be a dinner there. You're not going to go hungry. Yeah, but I want to know what it is. And I want to, I want to buy it myself. And I want to see the ingredients there before me. Or I'm going to be worried for two weeks whether or not I'm eating on Tuesday. Dad's going to be going like, son, I love you. Come on. Trust me. 
He's not, dads aren't honored by sons who don't think they're going to take care of them. They're honored when the son says, you know what, dad, I know you love me. I know your character. I know that you're good. I can trust you. Now I might want to pick the menu item for Tuesday night, but I'm not worried about whether I'm going to eat something. Okay. I was off my script on that illustration, but did it work for you? Okay. He is glorified by our dependings. He's glorified by our restings. He's glorified by our confidence in him. So that when we have these must-have faith moments, God brings them into our life so that the reality and the authenticity of our faith can be unveiled for his glory and for our good. So you might be here today and you're in a must-have faith moment. You're standing in Cana, you don't know what happens, what's going to happen in Capernaum. And you're thinking to yourself, well, this is not nice of God. I thought he was a good God. We sing these songs about how great God is and wonderful God is. And then I got this going on in my life. God, what are you doing? Is it possible that you could, through the eyes of this dad or this paralytic man, look at that crisis in a different way? And to see it for what God is doing in it. He's wanting to draw out of you a depending on him. A faith in him. A leaning and a resting in his promise to never leave you or forsake you. That he is going to meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That there is nothing in this life that can separate us from his love. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, oh, how he loves us. If we sing that, we can at the same time say, he doesn't love us and I don't know if I can depend on him. Those two things must go together. I had the opportunity to talk to a a woman recently and she's in a must-have faith crisis. She's not sure where things are going to go in the situation that she's in. And she, with tears in her eyes, talking to me, I, I said to her, I said, do you, do you, do you, th- do you believe that God's going to take care of you when you die? Oh, yes. So you think he's going to give you eternal life? Oh, yes. So your whole eternal future, you're confident that God's going to take care of you? Oh, yes, definitely. If he's going to do that for you, and you're okay resting on, in him on, for your eternity, can't you trust him for this thing that you're going through right now, which is infinitely less than that? And she thought for a second. I think it's a good point. Okay? And one of the things that I say regularly here is, the faith that saves is the same faith that we apply in the day-to-day of life. And too often Christians are like, I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. But I'm going to live my life by sight now. I want to know everything. I've got to have it all figured out. And it is the same. We live by faith, not by sight, the Bible says. And if you can trust him for the big things, sins forgiven, avoidance of eternal condemnation in hell, the promise of eternal life, eternal dwellings in the new heaven and the new earth, him meeting your needs for all of eternity in a sort of future existence after death that we know some about but not that much about, if you can trust him for that, why can't you trust him for this trial losing your job? Why can't you trust him for this trial uh, of friend betraying you? Why can't you trust him in this trial of your marriage uh, hitting a rough spot? Why can't you trust him in this trial where uh, financially you're going through a, a hard time? Why can't you trust him for anything that is less than that? 
You know what I'm saying here? Not, please. Because I'm looking at a group of people and I'm looking at myself who are about to walk out the door into a week where we're going to have big and small must-have faith moments. And when we look at those things and we think, God doesn't love me, look at this crisis that I'm in, we are missing the point. The point of these moments, just like with this paralyzed man and just like with this dad, the point of those moments is for God to be glorified in our depending on Him. And when our faith activates in those moments and we obey God, when I can't see what the result is going to be, now God is free to bring to us blessings that we're not going to take credit for because we're going to see that God has done it. And that's the goal. That's the goal. So can you follow their example? Can you stand in your Cana without any idea what's happening in Capernaum and trust God? for what you're going to find when you get there. And finally, I want to uh, point out who the real star is here. If you guys, if you leave here today, you get in your car and you're like, wow, boy, that dad, he was amazing. That paralyzed man, whoo! That was a message about the great faith of the paralyzed man. That's not so much the point here. John didn't write this to, to highlight the, the dad or the man. He wrote this to highlight the power of the Son of God. These are miracles that John uses in his gospel and weaves into the story to authenticate the claims of Christ. Imagine the power. This is quite a power display here. He speaks a word and a boy two counties over is healed. Who does that? Who does that? I don't know any doctor that does that. I don't know any nurse that does that. I don't know any home medicine by mom that does that. Only the Son of God could do that. Only God Himself could do that. Who stands next to a man whose legs have been paralyzed for 38 years? who's tried everything that the day had to offer and spent his whole life looking at his legs going, move, move, and they're not moving. Who walks up to a man like that and says, walk? And legs with muscles atrophied for all these years, probably this big around, suddenly strengthened and able to walk. Who does that? Who has that kind of power? Only the Son of God. His Word, listen, God's Word speaks reality into existence. This same Jesus spoke and the galaxies, there they were. He spoke and this beautiful world that we live in suddenly appeared. He speaks and reality exists. Someday He will speak again. His voice will summon The dead from the grave. Arise, he will say. And we're like, how can that happen? The molecules have spread all over the world. We don't realize how the atoms could possibly reconjugate into bodies. It just blows our mind. Yeah, well, you know what? It blows my mind that he can speak and heal a kid two counties over. And yet, the Bible says that he is going to speak and bodies are going to reconstitute and be glorified into a future existence. And that's going to be my body someday. He speaks 
and bodies will be raised from the dead. He will speak. He will just speak. And his ancient enemy, Satan, defeated, thrown into hell. He will speak and judge the nations. And so, friends, making wine or water into wine for somebody like that, it's no big deal. Speaking and healing a boy of his illness, a little bigger deal, but still not too tough. Looking at paralyzed legs and say, move. Not that hard. Not when you're the son of God. And that is why John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word. His word is powerful. He is the word of God. And we worship him rightly today.